0: We're going to be in the book of Ephesians. <laughs> Ephesians. I did that on purpose. Okay. It's Canadian for Ephesians. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2. Um, I didn't expect to be uh, preaching tonight, and I didn't even think about it when Kevin said last week, because I knew the school was closed, and so everybody's away, and and. uh in the middle of a sermon, he said that he wasn't going to be here. And I, I remember distinctively thinking, wow, I wonder who's going to be preaching. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, it's, it's harder than you think because I'm used to just teaching right through the Bible. So I always know, like, I know exactly what verses I'll be teaching on Sunday. We're in the book of Luke and we're right near the end. And then I know what comes next. And so I was trying to think, what am I going to do? And so I prepared a sermon on Ezekiel chapter 37, the chapter about the dead bones, the field of dead bones. And I got that done and went over it and thought, this is terrible. So I thought, no, I <laughs> can't do that. So I know I'll do the, the book of Haggai in the Old Testament, a book about a prophet, and I know that book really well. And so I prepared something on that. And then I said to Valerie, I said, I'm going to be teaching on Haggai. She's you're kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so I obeyed my wife, and I'm not going to do that. And then on, uh, uh, and this is going someplace, on our home fellowship last Friday, we did a thing on grace, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, everybody participated in it, and I thought, I think I'll teach on grace. And so I put a message together in Ephesians chapter 2, first 10 verses, and uh I went over it. and Well, it was too late, so here I am. (laughs) But um, I think that you'll learn a lot, even if you're an experienced Christian today. Uh, I've taught on this passage quite a number of times. Uh, Jeremy Bentham. I'm sure that you've never heard of it unless you've heard me use the illustration. Uh, Just just one other time I've used it. Jeremy Bentham. He's a lawyer, was... He's a philosopher. He was an animal rights activist. And he was an advocate of utilitarianism. Now, utilitarianism is the idea that everything is valued by its utility, its usefulness. And when uh, Jeremy Bentham died 191 years ago, he he gave all his money to University College London. And he requested in his will that his body be preserved and stored in a wo- wooden cabinet, termed his auto-icon. And uh, is, you've got a picture of that, Cheryl? Can you put that up? There he is. That's, there's Jeremy. Today, that's him. And it's, it's, his, his, uh, he, his body is still publicly displayed in the main building of the college, if you go to London. And there's a legend. It's not true, but that the body used to be at the board meetings, and when he was being preserved, uh, his head was damaged. So the head now is a wax head, although for a time his real head was displayed in the auto icon, but after some students stole it for a prank, (laughs) they locked it away in a secret place. Now, this sounds very weird, even for today, but it really shouldn't. As many today have themselves, many people have themselves, and even their animals, frozen so that in some future time, their bodies can be revived and they can live again. And this is called cryonics, very expensive. And the idea is that they have a hope that someone will figure out a way to unfreeze these people, even their animals, their pets, and they'll come alive again. Uh, Cryonics is Cool. (laughs) (laughs) So this clearly demonstrates the desire in our hearts to live forever. Actually, as a society, it is clear there's a great emphasis on life extension with the hope that somehow we can go on living indefinitely. And so some people get up early in the morning and go on bike rides and others lift weights and (laughs) take vitamins and all kinds of things. Nevertheless, With all of that, there seems to be an emptiness in our lives that can only be filled with a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Until it is fulfilled by Jesus, we'll always be trying to fill it with something else. Even in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, who is supposed to have been and I think was one of the wisest men to ever live in Ecclesiastes... In the Old Testament chapter 3 verse 11 it reads this way, God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity <coughs> excuse me in the human heart, eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. So only God can fill that longing that's in our hearts. Nothing else. No uh, motorcycles? <laughs> Uh, no uh, Corvettes, I've had both. No Vipers, I'm not going to tell you my Viper story, it is funny, but I'm not going to tell you, or sex, or large incomes, or vacations, or money, or music, or achievement, or sports, and especially religion, none of those things will ever fulfill us, uh, ever. It doesn't mean you shouldn't have any of the things I mentioned, I'm talking about the cars and that, that's not the point. Uh, so chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians contains a statement of how much God has blessed us, those of us who know Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's all of chapter 1. And Kevin, when he's preaching here on Wednesdays, is teaching uh, an, a talk to us about what it means to be chosen of God. He's talked about that a lot lately. And the book of Ephesians says the same things exactly. Paul is writing to the church in a place called Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, so he's writing to Christians to underline God's incredible blessings of grace on our lives. And he tells us that God sees us as holy and blameless. The word holy is, it means to be set apart for God's purposes. And he sees us as holy and blameless, totally forgiven because Jesus died for us. Paul says... That God has adopted us, that's a picture, as His sons and daughters. And He sealed us with the Holy Spirit, who is God, and has determined that we will be with Jesus forever. It literally says we'll be ruling with Him in eternity. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, first 10 verses, is the clearest explanation of the grace, and that's really what this whole thing is about, grace, of the grace of salvation in the New Testament. And the passage will first focus on our hopeless state before we receive Jesus, and then it will shine the bright light of God's grace on who we now are in Christ. So Paul first paints a picture for us of the condition of our lives before Jesus, and then contrasts that with who we are now in Christ. So look in your Bibles. You have to follow along. And uh, I'll read three verses and with very little comment. Verse one As for you, remember this is written to Christians, specifically to a church of Christians. As for you, believer, Christian, you were dead. That's the important word here. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 2 says, In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler, of the kingdom, of the air. Uh, That's a reference to Satan, to the demonic realm. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Do you see disobedient ones mean those who have not become a Christian, that they're living lives on their own. And verse 3 says... All of us also, all Christians also, lived among non-believers, because we were all non-believers at some point, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, that's our sinful nature, and following its desires and thoughts. And then he says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now we don't hear a lot of sermons on wrath, but it's a good word to understand. Wrath is God's anger, is God's righteous anger. That's what it is. Wrath is God's righteous anger. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, in the New Living Translation, I put it on the screen here. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, that's his wrath, just like everyone else. Now, the word dead, I want to go back to that word. It's not a metaphor. It's to be taken quite literally. And so you would think, if you're really thinking about what I'm saying, you say, but how can that be? I mean, really? I know people who are non-Christians, and they're fit and smart, and many of them are even more considerate than some who say they are Christians. And so are you saying, Pastor Carl, that these nice people are dead? Yes, I am. But more importantly, that is what the Apostle Paul is saying here, and that is what God is communicating through Paul's writings. We need to understand what it means to be dead. Dead. Now, I'm sure none of you will remember, it's too long ago, uh, the movie in 1995 called Dead Man Walking. Uh, it was an interesting movie because uh, it was a prison situation. And so you've got these people in death row. And then the, if somebody comes along they, because they're under guilty of what they did. And they're in jail. And so they're getting out now on death row. And uh, they're walking down toward the room where they're going to have the needle or the chair or whatever it is. And so they were called dead men walking. They're still alive but they're dead men walking. And there's an interesting way to demonstrate the gospel here. If we wanted to demonstrate the gospel in this, these are guilty, uh, in the movie it was men, these guilty these guilty men are in these cells, and they've done some terrible crime, and they come out, and they're now walking, even though they're going to be totally deceased in just a few minutes. And they get to the door of the room, and at the door, there's someone standing there saying, are you guilty of your sins, of what you did? Are you guilty of the crimes? And the, yes, I'm guilty. Okay, well, good. I want you to turn around, and you're free to go. I'm going to go in here, and I am going to die in your place. Now, you could imagine the, the idea of the, the criminal, you could imagine... <laughs> Thinking, I mean, he'd think it must be a joke. He must be kidding or something. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Only he was righteous. He wasn't unrighteous as we all are. He wasn't a sinner and he died for our sins so we don't have to go through that door. But we are all dead and walking while living lives characterized by our sinful nature when we're not a Christian. What's dead? Our souls are dead. Our souls are us. They're dead, completely unable to understand spiritual things until Jesus comes into our lives, then we're born again. That's the phrase Jesus used in John chapter 3 in talking to Nicodemus. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, it gives us a very interesting understanding. The person without the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, because everybody who becomes a Christian receives the Spirit into their lives does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. And I really understand that because I read all kinds of books and religions and philosophies and tried to prove there was no God. And and, uh, I would read the Bible and I just laughed at it. I thought it was a silly book. And then I got saved. I got born again. And then I read the Bible, and I, at, some, I, at first I couldn't stop crying. I remember trying to read First John to Valerie after I got saved. It, I think it kind of frightened her because I wasn't that kind of person. And I, I just couldn't. I, I would keep starting to cry because now I was understanding spiritual things. So what the verse is saying is that those who have not received Jesus as Lord and Savior are as dead spiritually as Jeremy Bentham is bodily, and he will never raise his finger again no matter how long they preserve him in that case. You can freeze all or part of your body for as long as you would like, but there will be no scientific discovery that will ever infuse that body with life again. But take heart, it gets worse. Those who do not know Jesus think They are living their own lives in their own way, but they are not. They are being influenced by the world system and by the devil and his demons, by the demons or fallen angels, and by uh, their own lower human nature. So we read in the New Testament that our real enemies, even as Christians, but the real enemies of everyone are the world, the flesh, and the devil. So what does that mean? Well, the world... Uh, That just simply means the world's systems. The Greek word is pronounced cosmos, and most everybody knows that word. It's used 186 times in the New Testament, and in most every instance, it has an evil intent. So the world consists of much of what we see on our cable networks, plus the world's morality, drugs, money, music, sports, and especially various religions. Uh, These and much else are what influences those of us who are in the world, even as Christians. And then the devil, what does that mean? In John's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in John's gospel, the devil is named the prince of this world. And in Matthew's gospel, the devil is described as the prince of demons. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we read the God, small g, that's talking about the devil, of this age, the time we're living, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So the world influences those who are spiritually dead and actually, when I was spiritually, I liked it. I thought it was great when I was spiritually dead. I didn't realize it. If you had told me I was spiritually dead, I would have just laughed at you. Plus, the devil also influences those in the world without spiritual discernment from God. Most people don't think about their worldview. That's a big word, very important word today. Worldview is how we look at the world, how we see the world. What is the world like? What is the meaning of life? What in the world influences us the most? In 1 John... Near the end of our New Testament, chapter 519, it says, We know that we are children of God. He's talking to Christians now. We Christians know that we're children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Again, referring to Satan and to the angels. So the world, uh, the devil, and now the flesh. What's, What's this about, the flesh? Well, Ephesians 2, 3, we've already read it, but I'll read it again. All of us also lived among the non-believing world at one time. We still do, but we live there uh, as non gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. That's the flesh, the sinful nature. We're all sinners by birth. And following its desires and thoughts. So the truth is that those who have not received Jesus are not in control of their lives as they may think. They, in fact, are controlled and influenced by the environment and the devil and their own ungodly desires. They're under bondage to their lower nature, sin, and they don't even know it. Or they do know it and they can't do anything about it. Or they do know it and think it's great. But they are still responsible for their actions. Perhaps you've heard of the little girl that was confronted by her mother because she had kicked her brother in the shins and then pulled his hair. Her mother asked, Why did you let the devil influence you to kick your brother and to pull his hair? And the little girl answered, The devil did did make me kick him, but pulling his hair was my idea. (laughs) In other words, we're still responsible uh, for, uh, as, as, even as Christians, but non-Christians too. We're still responsible. We don't, uh, it, we, we, we choose to sin. Now, if you really want to understand how the devil works, I've, you've heard me say this many times. Most of you have, I hope, read The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And it's a, it's a great read. Letters from a senior devil uh, to a junior devil. And it's really awesome to read and so full of insight And it's important that we understand the schemes of the devil. And that book, that brilliant mind of Lewis, put these letters together so you just can fully understand every one of them. So let's return to this statement in verse 3 for a moment, the second part of it. It says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath, of his righteous anger. In John chapter 3... Verse 36, it says this. Whoever believes in the Son, that's Jesus, has eternal life. Now eternal life, Zoe, is, the, is a, a type of life. It's eternal, yes. We're all going to live forever anyhow in heaven or hell, but it's a quality of life. So whoever believes in Jesus has that quality of life, but whoever rejects Jesus will not see that quality of life. Why? Because God's wrath... Righteous anger remains on them. Well, it brings up the whole idea of something like, well, what about people that have never heard about the gospel? They've never been to a church uh, that's that's really a church and all of that kind of thing. Uh, What about them? Well, they have no excuse. And the Apostle Paul makes it very clear in the book of Romans. I love this passage of Scripture uh, starting at verse 18. And, And I'm going to put it up on the screen in the New Living Translation. And it says this, But God shows His anger, that's His wrath, from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, I know right away, uh, I think back in my pre-Christian times, I would have been really upset all right now. What do you mean, wicked? I'm not wicked. Well, that's what I thought, too. Uh, they know the truth, it says, about God because He has made it obvious to everyone. How's He done that? Well, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. So that's obvious. Through everything God made, they can clearly see God's invisible qualities. What are they? His eternal power. And divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that when you look up at the sky, if you did this, if you looked up at the sky and somehow had a photographic memory at some night sky where it's really clear, and then you could go ahead a full year and look up at the sky, you'd see everything was there. But if you went day after day, it's all different. When I go out on my bike in the early mornings, I love to look up. I've learned to find the planets and certain stars and all of that. And I know where they're going to be tomorrow. And it amazes me how fast some of the, the, where the moon especially moves around, Uh, visibly to me. You know the earth rotates, all that kind of stuff. But it's never out of sync. And it never has been out of sync. And so if you have any logic at all, you have to say, this didn't just happen. I mean, there wasn't a big bang, and there it is. Well, like what banged? And then who made what caused the bang to bang? Well, God did all this. And, and it, when we look up, we can see how trustworthy He is. We can see how awesome He is. And the more we learn, I'm always looking at the, what used to be the Hubble telescope, but now you can get better pictures than that online. And you, it's just amazing to me to see the vastness of space. It's a way beyond. It's still, it's still creating new stars and galaxies, and incredible. So we have no excuse. We can't say, well, you know, God. If God made all this and He made the earth and everything, then I have, must be somehow responsible to who He is, because here I am. There's a doctrine called the Doctrine of Total Depravity. Only if you're an experienced Christian, you've heard about it. The first three verses of Ephesians 2 are really a summing up of the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And Romans teaches us that every man and woman born is contaminated by sin. And so the theologians call it total depravity. The word means that we're we're all corrupt when we're born. Just go work in the nursery if you don't believe me. Uh, but here's, the, here's some more about it. We're not as bad as we could be. We could be even worse. But every aspect of our lives, that's the idea, every aspect of our lives have been tainted by sin and deserves God's righteous anger. Now, we're certainly capable of doing some good. Uh, Non-Christians, lots of non-Christians do some really good things. But our motives will always be in question. And as a result, then... We're totally lost. We're separated from God, and we need salvation. In Romans chapter 3, it is written, there is no one righteous, meaning perfect like God is, hoping what he thinks they are, not even one person. And there's no one who understands. And then it says there is no one who seeks God. And you may say, uh, or no, as someone who says they're seeking God, but if they are, it's only because the Holy Spirit is working in them if they're really seeking God. If God is not in our lives, then our sin nature controls our lives. God's wrath does not describe God having bursts of anger. That's not the idea. God's not an angry God. He doesn't blow up in anger. But that in, his wrath, in fact, is God's constant displeasure and reaction against sin. It, it, to use the human analogy, it breaks his heart. And God's wrath is actually a sign of His love. Someone has written, if God can look at the sin and injustice of this world, especially today, and not get angry, (laughs) He's not much of a God. The God of the Bible is not some unmovable, unfeeling force, but a God who cares, a God who did something about His anger. He demonstrated his love by having Jesus die on the cross so we could all come out from under God's anger or wrath and instead experience them, the mercy and grace, grace of our great God. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Jesus, he who is the Christ, to die for us while we were still Sinners. Amazing. Now, back to your Bibles. Look at verse 4 and a few verses. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. Now, mercy is important. Uh, uh, We get mercy, not justice. We deserve justice, but we get mercy. Like the man standing at the door saying, okay, I'm going to die for you. Jesus does that for us. So, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. It literally says in the underlying language, has raised us from the dead spiritually with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, that's just another word for sinners, and it is by grace you have been saved. Grace means unmerited favor. Grace means getting something you don't deserve. And it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In other words, we have access to heaven in prayer. We have access to heaven in eternity. Uh, we're going to spend our, uh, all, all of our lives, really, the little bit we hear, but the rest of our lives are all going to be spent with Christ. And verse 7 says, In order that in the coming ages... We might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ, the Messiah, whose name is Jesus. And then we just have this one little partial sentence, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved. Now, we just need to stop here and realize how amazing this statement is. Knowing all we do about our sin nature, why would God save anyone? Think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a religious terrorist. He killed Christians. The first Christian killed in our Bibles that we see is Stephen, and he was right there just cheering them all on. And he's on, his, on the road where he got uh, eventually stopped by God, but uh, he was on the way. Uh, his whole goal was to get rid of the church, to get rid of Christians. And yet God saved him. Our salvation certainly couldn't be because of anything we have done. It's all of grace. And Paul piles up words to try and describe what God is like, his salvation, his love, agape love. He loved us when we didn't deserve it at all. His mercy, he gave us mercy instead of justice. His kindness, uh, he has great patience with us and the incomparable riches of His grace, His very, very, very great grace. Verse 5 tells us that God has made us alive, has raised us from the dead with Christ even when we were dead in our sins. That's where we started about being dead. Now that is an accurate picture of what has happened to us in salvation. And we are right now raised from the dead and able to live godly lives that will cause those who come to know us to ask us about the hope that we have. It should make us totally different than we were before. And uh, I know that when I got saved, especially in the office I worked in, I was a stockbroker at the time and, and uh, sort of a little bit of a ringleader in the office. And I came in and, uh, and I, I wasn't using the same words in my language that I used to use all the time. A lot of things had changed, and everybody noticed right away, and they laughed and said, oh, he'll get over it. He's always, off. He's always doing something and going off in some binge. So uh, he'll get over it. And then after quite a, an amount of time, I didn't get over it. I'd never gotten over it. And, uh, and some of them uh, came to know the Lord Jesus Christ because they came to ask me, how is it that you changed so much? What happened to you? And I was able to tell them about how I met uh, Jesus. Um, <clears throat> so, here's the good news, verse 8. This is really my whole point. This is what I wanted to get to. Verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved. So, if you're a Christian, it's because of grace. Uh, on um, In our home fellowship uh, last Friday, we asked everybody to come up with a definition of grace. Just, just sit back and think a bit and come up with a definition of grace. And the first person uh, quoted an acrostic that maybe even most of you know. And I hadn't heard it for a while. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And so it's for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this... Grace is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, and it's not by works. You see, a lot of people think, well, if I, just, if I just decide to be good, if I'm going to get religious, I'm going to go to church, and not just once, I'm going to go to church three times a week, I'm going to give a lot of money, and I'm going to memorize things, and, uh, and uh, nobody will ever ask you what the sixth commandment is again, I'll be able to tell them right away. I can't remember either, but at any rate, so it's not by works. It's not, there's nothing we can do to be saved because if we did, see what it says? Not by works so that no one can boast because I would have walked into the office that day and said, wait till I tell you what I did so that I got saved, and I did this, and I did that. and You can't say that because I didn't do anything. As a matter of fact, the day before, I was still cursing God, and then all of a sudden, God really got to my heart, in my case, through reading books and, and, and a witness of a businessman friend and, and client that really uh, demonstrated a difference that I couldn't argue with, and then I gave my life to Jesus. And so it's not by work so that no one can boast, For we are God's workmanship. We'll talk about that word in a minute. Created in Christ, that's the word for the anointed one or the Messiah, whose name is Jesus. It isn't Jesus' last name. It's his position. He's the Christ. So created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, we can't work our way into heaven, but after we become God's workmanship, uh, then now God has already prepared uh, things for us to do. In other words, He's got a plan for our life. And He's not hiding it. It's not hard to find. You're going to have to read your Bibles and be part of a a local, uh, part of the universal church and all of that, and God will use you when you become a Christian, you, all of us here that are Christians, which I'm hoping is all of us, uh, God has a plan and he has a life for us that's a way better than we ever would have considered for ourselves. So let's talk about the word workmanship. This is my favorite word in the whole passage besides the word grace. Verse 10 says, we are God's workmanship. Uh, the Greek word is pronounced poema. And we get our word poem from poema. But it's more than a poem. It's not that we're just a poem, of God is like a poem, it's a work of art. The word poema in Greek means, describes a work of art or a masterpiece, God's masterpiece. So every one of us, when we're saved, we're now God's masterpiece. When the Reverend Paul Gibson retired as principal of Cambridge in England, he was presented with a painted portrait. And it was painted by a very skilled artist. Uh, The Reverend Gibson said that in the future, when people saw the painting, they would not ask, who is that man? But they would ask, who painted that portrait? You and I are God's portrait. Our lives are His portrait. And we're to live our lives in such a way that people ask, who is responsible for that man or that woman Becoming like they are. They would see that this is totally different. William Barclay wrote these words. We know what God wants us to do. God has prepared long beforehand the kind of life he wants us to live. And has told us about it in his book and through his son. We cannot earn God's love. But we can and must show how grateful we are for it by seeking with our whole hearts to live the kind of life which will bring joy in God's heart. I've seen many stories on TV over the years. There's a thing Valerie and I watch every Sunday afternoon. It's a news format, and it's pretty good. And many, many times there'll be a story where maybe it's a fireman, uh, maybe it's just a good Samaritan who saved someone's life from drowning or from a fire. Uh, One lately, if if you're watching the news, you'd know about it. It's a football player that's well known, and he was on the way home in his Uber uh, from his practice just a week or so ago, and he saw this car on the side of the road in flames. They pulled it over, and they were worried it would blow up, and he was able to go in there with the help of another man, the Uber driver, and they were able to save this person. Now, do you think that that man that was saved, it was a man that was saved, that that man would just say, oh, I'm glad you were here and do that, see you later. I doubt it. No. God has saved us from an eternity separated from God. We use the word hell, but it's terrible to think of not being able to be in the presence of God. And we need to be very thankful for that. And the thankfulness is shown by the way we live our lives. The works we're to do are works that God has obtained for us to walk in, to to live our lives in. God puts them in. We work them out. That's how it works. And it is to be a joyful work, not a burdensome work. Most of you know my favorite Christian word is the word joy. We should have joy no matter what difficulties you're going through, what pain we happen to be in, how everything seems to have gone wrong, because we know that God is in charge. So we know that we're going to be okay. In Philippians chapter 1, the most joyful book in the whole Bible, in the New Testament, verse 6, it says, Being confident of this... That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of the Messiah, Christ Jesus. That's the day he returns or the day that we go to him. So he, we're being confident that He will begin a work in us as soon as we become a Christian, and He'll keep doing it until we meet Him. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, it reads, Therefore, my dear friends, Christian friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, the Apostle Paul wrote this, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The first verse told us that he works it into us, but we're to continue to work out our salvation, not earn it. We've already got it. Once you've got it, you've got it. That's it. But to work out our salvation, meaning all the results of it, with fear and trembling, meaning we respect and love God with all of our hearts, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And so he will make sure uh, that... Uh, we will not miss God's will if we're Christians. It's pretty straightforward. We have work to do. We don't work to be saved, but we have work to do, lives to live for Him. Nothing can be more joyful. And when we are saved, we're saved to serve God and love and serve others. That's when we can really become others-centered people, not always into myself. If you're always into yourself, you're going to, have trouble with depression, you're going to have trouble with all kinds of stuff if you just always are thinking about you, know where to reach out to others, and we have some great examples in our church of that, uh, especially. And in the end, in the end of all this, we move to our new home in heaven. Uh, The Bible pictures this like a great feast. Uh, So it is a good illustration to say It's a metaphor, but it's a good illustration to say that heaven, that eternity is better than the best Thanksgiving meal you've ever enjoyed. So life is not what we accomplish. That's not what it's all about. Life is what God made our lives to be. That's what our life is. It's possible to be a failure in the world's eyes, but a winner in God's eyes. Because regardless of our worldly results... When we leave this life, we enter a feast in heaven that is better than anything we could have possibly imagined while living on this earth. When you are living the Christian life, you're not performance-oriented anymore. That doesn't mean you don't try to be excellent in what you do. If you're going to college, you want to see if you can get A's. If you have the ability, you should work hard. You should study. You should read. If you're playing a sport... Uh, it's, uh, uh, it doesn't, you don't have to be the number one. Uh, I'm like about a hundred and thousand and one, but uh, you, you can play it better and better and more per, be more persistent and, and learn the game. If you're working at any kind of uh, job of any kind, you're going to be known as the first person to get there and the last to leave, and you're going to be diligent the whole time so that you even, in a sense, make yourself indispensable Uh, That's not why you're doing it. You're doing it for the glory of God. So whatever we do, we do it, and it doesn't, for God, and then he rewards us in the end, not because we were the best football player, the best this, the best that, uh, the best student, but because we love God, and his reward eclipses anything else. And so we no longer have to be always worried about, am I being acceptable, am I doing okay, and all of that kind of thing. Uh, We just need to want to serve God. Now, I started out by saying that on Friday night in our home fellowship, and uh, uh, some of you may have been there uh, tonight or be watching, so you've already heard this, but uh, I end it by uh, using an illustration that I think pictures grace, for me, uh, better than just about anything I've seen recently. And uh, I think you'll like it, and then you'll get the point. Um, I just finished recently reading a book. You can see it on the screen. I'm always pushing books. Unoffendable. It is the most amazing book. The guy, John Moore put me onto it, one of our elders. And uh, the guy is a a radio uh, guy, Christian call-in radio guy, Christian guy. And he's written this book, and the second edition is the one, the latest edition. He's added a couple of chapters to the book. It's sold extremely well. And it's all about not taking offense and uh, how da- not, uh, take, not taking offense and being forgiving. You know, forgiveness is the only disease that you can get from somebody that's hurt you. It doesn't hurt them, it'll destroy you if you don't forgive. Forgive doesn't mean I think what you've done is right or something like that. It's just that if you've hurt me or done something, you can't offend me. And you should never be able to offend a Christian. And the book, when I first started reading the book, I doubted some of the things he said. When I got to the end of the book, I thought, boy, have I ever been wrong in some places. (laughs) It's a wonderful book. So I'm going to read to you, and we'll finish with this. I'm going to read to you uh, this illustration about grace. And uh, the chapter title is, and lo, L-O, and lo, the kingdom of God is like a terrible football team. So here's what he writes. My son is like me. He's not much into athletics, but we, him and his wife, signed him up for flag football when he was in sixth grade. My wife told me the league needed someone to coach my son's team, the Rams. And I told her point blank, I would not be doing it. I know nothing about coaching football, nothing. I will not be coaching the Rams, I said. The park district called me before the first practice and told me about the Rams and how they needed a coach. And would I do it? And I told them, no, I'm sorry. I just can't do that. It's out of the question. I will not be coaching the Rams. So then he goes on to say, I dropped Justice. That's the name of his son. I dropped Justice off at practice, and all the teams went to different parts of the practice fields. They all had coaches. The Rams assembled, and everyone's parents had dropped them off, and I towered over all the kids, and they asked me if I was their coach. And I told them no. No. I'm sorry, I will play catch right now, but I'll be not be coaching the Rams. The smallest kid, a little scraggly blonde kid named Jared, threw the ball back and forth with me, and he asked me again if I would coach, and I told him again, no. They'd have to find someone else to coach the Rams. He caught the ball, he stopped, and he looked at me, and he said, okay, but for today, can I please call you coach? When I got home, I had to tell my wife why I was carrying a big bag of footballs, pylons, and flags. I was now coaching the Rams. I was clueless. Over the first eight games, we not only didn't win, we didn't score any points. We were shut out every game. I loved the kids, but I just didn't know what I was doing. We'd all look over during our practices to see the yellow shirt team. Over there, the team that had six football dads coaching positions, fancy drills, and football-y things that I didn't know about. They were amazing, a well-oiled machine. I feared playing them. We stunk. I think we hit rock bottom when we were penalized for wearing illegal shorts. (laughs) Apparently, you can't wear shorts of pockets and flag football. To avoid forfeiture, I sent my team into the crowd of parents to randomly ask people if they could swap shorts with them. (laughs) That was a low point. And we played that team, the yellow shirt team, over there, the one with the dads, with visors and whistles and multiple future NCAA recruits, the very last game of the season. We were 0 and 11. They were 11 and 0, Sounds like we had no chance, right? Sounds like there's no way in the world we could possibly beat these guys, right? They laughed at us before the game. Something incredible happened. Our best player, a little guy named Christian, returned the opening kickoff for a touchdown. We were ahead 6-0. So the team that supposedly didn't have a chance... The one that was mocked, derided, considered the worst coach team in the league, now led the game over the mighty yellow team. There were gasps from the crowd. Could the impossible happen? This could be like the 1980 hockey upset, the miracle on ice, all over again. Unbelievable. I patrolled the sidelines proudly announcing our intent to go for two. And then we missed that. And then they scored. 77 unanswered (laughs) points, and we lost 77 to 6. So yeah, it's not really that great of a story, except for one thing. As our dejected, winless kids left the field, the kids who were now 0-12 and just got humiliated again, something wonderful happened, something you usually don't see in football. A white stretch limousine Pulled up along the field, a limo with flags, Rams flags. Everyone stopped and stared. The Rams, the playoff-bound yellow team, everybody. And a mom said, guys, it's time for your end-of-season party. The Rams went from dejected losers to royalty. Just like that, they were smiling and laughing and jumping up and down. They all piled into the limo, and off they went for our big pizza and swim party. The yellow team, coaches and all, were in awe. That is how the kingdom of God works. The last are first and the first are last. And in the end, as much as we want to think our performance is all that matters, the victory has exactly nothing to do with us. We're human. So we're going to occasionally feel threatened. It happens. Anger happens too. So do jealousy and bitterness and resentment. But if you want to be a citizen of this other kingdom, the one in which God promises things will be set right in the end, you may as well remind yourself of it all the time. The things you think matter so much, they don't matter so much. If you put your trust in God, you're already a success because Jesus succeeded. You don't need to be insecure in who you are, not because you're so great, but because your security isn't found in who you are. The things you think matter so much, they don't matter much. In the end, you're free to fail all you want, kids, because there's a sweet thought. The limo is coming for you anyway. Now listen, every one of us here have a date with physical death. Every one of us. And we'll be gone from this earth as we know it right now. Every single one of us. And uh, all of us think, uh, or maybe just say most of us, but, well, I, I tomorrow, next week I'll do this. In April i got to do this. i got to remember this in May. Uh, and uh, next year, but we don't know if we'll even wake up tomorrow. We really don't. We actually don't. Now, we don't have to obsess about that except to think this way. When we go... Where we go is so much better than anything we could ever have imagined. Paul put it this way: better than anything you could ever imagine or even think. It's way better. And C.S. Lewis, I love his uh, the way he explains it in the Chronicles of Narnia. In to put it this way, in heaven, every chapter of our lives is better than the last one. Forever and ever and ever. Ultimate joy, ultimate peace, ultimate fulfillment. Forever and ever and ever. We won't be bored. Uh, we'll, we will have incredible purpose, and we'll be with Jesus. That's grace. None of us deserves it. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can have it. Doesn't matter who you are, young, old, High IQ, low to weak, drawn doesn't make any difference. So let's pray. Father, I just pray that if there's anybody watching online, I know there those watching, and also, Father, if, uh, if there's anyone here who's never really given their lives to Jesus, I pray that you would draw them even tonight and they would not leave here or go home from, where, or at home wherever they're watching. They would immediately experience your grace in their lives. Father, I remember praying, asking you to come into my life, and then in the next especially three or four days, I just knew something had totally changed, even though I hadn't been part of church or any of that, and, and, and now I know what it was. And so you're so good to us. If we call on Jesus, admit we're sinners, admit we need a Savior, you'll always make yourself known to us in a way that we will have no doubt that we're saved and on our way to heaven where every chapter of our lives is better than the next, or than the last one, I'm sorry. In Jesus' name, amen.